Well, the game plan, as he called it, rarely varied. Each morning, he'd awake first and set things on the kitchen table. Her pills, the newspaper, a fiber bar, a banana. Then he'd return to the bedroom and rouse his wife. Often, she'd resist leaving the warmth of the covers, so he'd gently have to coax her. Always, he was gentle. Once she was up, he'd lead her to the kitchen to read the newspaper. It took two or three hours to get through the pages because she'd underline every sentence in every story with a black pen. After a while, he found comfort in reading between the lines because it was something they shared. She was leading a happy life, he said. It was all part of the game plan. Bob Cousy knows a bit about game plans, and he and his wife, Missy, were always a team. In the early days of their marriage, when the Celtic star was gone for weeks at a time, Missy made her husband a presence in the home by telling her daughters where he was and what he was doing. Decades later, when Missy slowly succumbed to the ravages of dementia, her husband ensured that the woman he called my bride was always by his side even as her mind wandered where he couldn't follow. Last month, just this last September, after 63 years of marriage, Bob Cousy said goodbye to his bride. His loved ones say he's bereft and inconsolable. Cousy is a private man who cared for Missy alone for more than a decade, never seeking help, never seeking services or sympathy. That wasn't in the game plan. Missy's cognitive decline was gradual and began a dozen years ago. She would ask him the same question over and over. She hallucinated, grew disoriented, and struggled with balance. But she always knew her husband, and she bristled at any suggestion that she suffered from dementia. So Cousy worked hard to create the perception that his once independent wife was vital and healthy. Because she believed she could still drive, he shipped her station wagon to their place in Florida each winter so she could see it in the driveway. Artificial red flowers were planted in their garden. He did all the household chores and let her think she performed them herself. My dad provided an environment that allowed her, in her mind, to be a fully functioning adult, said their daughter. The couple's social life vanished as Missy's symptoms worsened. Other than a Thursday night out with the boys and some quick rounds of golf, Cousy spent all of his time alone with his bride. He watched General Hospital with Missy and patiently answered the same questions. He stocked the fridge with her favorite candy, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. At night, she'd cover him with a blanket, and he'd stroke her arm. I love you, honey, he'd say. I love you too, Missy would always reply. On September 7th, Bob Cousy, a basketball star for the Boston Celtics, uh, took his wife for an early dinner at Worcester Country Club. On the way home in the car, Missy suffered a massive stroke. She died peacefully two weeks later and was buried in St. John's Cemetery. Today, Cousy is consoled by memories of his bride and the knowledge that she was happy until the end of her days. Ever the class act, 
He marveled that the son of poor French immigrants could enjoy such a charmed, fortunate life. Athletic fame, loving daughters, grandchildren, and a wife he adored. Only when asked what he missed most about Missy did he struggle for composure. I can't put the pills out in the morning anymore, he said. And I can't care for her anymore. What does covenant faithfulness look like? Examples of covenant faithfulness are rare in our day. The, wedding, the way wedding vows are broken over and over in our culture, the way children are abused, neglected, and avoided, the way Christians treat the church as optional tells us that we understand very little about what it means to maintain a covenant we have made to another person. Sure, we're willing to love others as long as it's easy or convenient or as long as they provide some kind of benefit to us. As long as I am getting something out of the deal, I'll be willing to continue. But the minute I stop getting something, the minute the situation becomes difficult or uncomfortable, well, maybe this responsibility I've taken on just isn't really worth it after all. But today, I hope to show you that God does not treat his covenant with us that way. He does not wait for us to provide some kind of benefit to him because we never could. His love for us is not contingent upon how easy or convenient it is. In fact, God's covenant with us was very costly. God does not wait to see if we will be faithful to him before he is faithful to us, no. Today we will see that in spite of our unfaithfulness, God remains eternally faithful. In spite of our, in spite of your unfaithfulness, God remains eternally faithful. Turn with me to the book of Numbers, chapter 25. Numbers 25, it's page 133 in the chair Bibles, I believe. Numbers chapter 25, starting in verse 1. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold... One of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose, left the congregation, and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced them both. The man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, 
Those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to understand who you are today. Help us to understand your holiness, your greatness, your majesty, our sinful condition and how we are in need of a Savior. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In this account, we are told that Israel was living in Shittim. Ha, ha, ha. Everybody get it, just get it out now. It's a funny word. It's in the Bible. It's the name of a city, right? Um, that's one you got to figure out how you're going to say that well before you get up and stand in front of people, right? Um, anyway, moving on. Shittim was the final stop before the Israelites were to invade the promised land, okay? So they're about to enter the promised land. But before we can move forward with what happens in this story, we need to understand a little bit about what has just happened to the people of Israel. Right before this, we have the account of Balaam and his four oracles of blessing, okay? So if you look back in the previous chapter, you'll see this. Um, If you know that story, you know that Balaam was commissioned by Balak to curse the Israelites, okay? So it can get confusing. There's Balaam and there's Balak. Balak was the king of Moab. Balaam was a false prophet. Balak wanted to destroy the Israelites. He had seen what they had done to the other nations on their way to the promised land, and he was afraid. So he went and got Balaam. He said, Balaam, come curse these Israelites. Wipe them out. I want them destroyed. But Balaam was unable to do that. He was confronted, even as a false prophet, he was confronted by an angel from the Lord and was told that Israel was a blessed people and that he would only be allowed to bless them. So that's what he did. Four times, Balak tried to get Balaam to curse Israel, but he could only bless them. In fact, during his final oracle, Balaam actually ends up prophesying destruction upon Moab the complete opposite of what he was supposed to do. When we get to the end of chapter 24, verse 25, we see that Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. So it seems that Balak's plan had failed, and the Israelites had prevailed. But then we pick up with our story in the very next verse. And we see that Israel, who had just been protected by divine intervention, succumbs to a much more subtle temptation. We are told that while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Later on in the book of Numbers, in chapter 31, we read this. Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these women, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. 
And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So we see later on in Numbers that, in fact, Balak's plan did work, just not in the way that he was expecting. Balak was wanting the people of Israel cursed and immediately destroyed, but God intervened. But immediately after God's intervention, the Israelites yoked themselves to the false prophet of Baal. The Israelites ate and bowed down to the gods of the Moabites. And through this behavior, they were joined with this false god of Baal. So we have what seems to be this replaying, this this reenactment of the Garden of Eden where the women under the influence and temptation of Balaam, come to the men and invite them, entice them into sin. And the men are obviously easy targets and willing to be seduced into worshiping this false god. But look with me in verse 2. Notice what it takes to become yoked with Baal. Eating and bowing down. Eating and bowing down. Now, we're going to see there's more involved here in worshiping Baal, a lot more involved than just eating and bowing down. But isn't it interesting how we're not told that the Israelites underwent some kind of grand conversion where they had a, this extreme religious experience where they renounced their, their Israelite faith in God. They renounced God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they began worshiping this God of Baal. No, they simply absorbed the religion that was all around them. They just took their own religion and added a little bit of Baal to it, eating and bowing down. Very common things, very simple things. Think about the mentality of the Israelites as they contemplated these actions. I mean, it's not really that big of a deal, right? Okay, so I eat a little food. It's been sacrificed to an idol. I bow down to a carved image a few times. It's really harmless. After all, look at these women. They're beautiful. What we are seeing here right off the bat in Numbers 25, is how intimately tied worship is to our daily lives. We are not told that the Israelites denied their faith, had some great conversion experience, and took on an entirely different religion. No, they simply absorbed the false religion that was surrounding them. No doubt, they would have still identified themselves, if you would have asked them, with the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God who brought them out of Egypt through the wilderness and performed many signs, but they would just add a little bit of Baal, a little bit of eating here, a little bit of bowing here. I mean, how harmful can it be? You see, when you eat, you are worshiping. When you drink, you are worshiping. When you talk, you are worshiping. When you work, you are worshiping. The question is not, are you worshiping every moment of your lives? That's not the question. You are. The question is, whom are you worshiping every moment of your lives? You see, we are not neutral people. Everything we do, every action we take, every thought we think, every word we speak 
is an act of worship. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our speech is not disconnected from our hearts. Every moment of our lives is either spent in worship and adoration to the one true God who created us for his glory, or it is spent worshiping someone false. We are never neutral. This means that we will give an account for how we have spent every moment, every thought, every word. Sin is not just the bad things we do. Sin is the failure to love God the way we should every moment of our lives. And when we begin to see our sin the way God sees it, we start to see how exceedingly sinful we really are. God is worthy of our worship every moment, in every detail, in every action, in every thought. And we have heaped up for ourselves mountains of rebellion. Think about that. Every moment that you have spent not loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you give an account for that. Every moment. Israel didn't deny their faith. They just tried to add something to it. And in doing that, they destroyed it. In the New Testament, James rebukes his readers by saying, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You cannot love God and the world. There can only be one person on the throne of your heart. Who will it be? For the Israelites at this time, it was Baal. Now, who was Baal? Baal shows up all over the Old Testament. So who was this God, this false God, Baal? What do we know about Baal? Well, Baal was considered the weather god of the Canaanites. Now, that may seem a little strange, thinking that what's the big deal, right? The weather god. But put yourself in the shoes of a person in the ancient Near Eastern world living off the land, which pretty much everybody did. What are you probably going to be praying for more than anything if you're surrounded by the desert. Rain, right? Why? Because you want to eat, right? You want food to grow. So Baal eventually became the god of fertility. And this fertility that Baal supposedly provided was not just sought in the activity of the clouds, if you know what I mean. Fertility wasn't just about things growing in the ground. Fertility became giving birth. So you can imagine the kinds of practices that surrounded the worship of Baal. This is why Baal proved to be such a temptation for the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. To worship Baal was to worship sex. It meant that you were given license to engage in almost any kind of sexual practice. They ate food that was offered to Baal. They bowed down to Baal And they engaged in fornication and adultery, all in the name of Baal. And what was God's response? Verses 4 and 5, judgment. 
Verse 3, we read, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. When God tells Moses to hang the chiefs of the people in the sun, what he means is that first they are to be killed. And then their bodies probably, this is what he probably meant, their bodies are to be impaled on poles in broad daylight for all to see. Now think about what that would have looked like. We're told later in verse 9 that 24,000 people died in the slaughter. We don't know how many were actually hanging on poles But there is no doubt that it was a grisly sight to see. I mean, think about the effect of this kind of brutality on children. It was a brutal world already. Don't get me wrong. The ancient world was a horrific place, full of death and sickness, destruction. But hundreds, maybe thousands of bodies impaled on poles all around the camp of Israel? That would be disgusting. I mean, imagine the odor, the stench. When we contemplate the judgment of God in this passage, we ought to be moved to see the seriousness of our sin for what it is. Throughout the Old Testament, we read of many instances where God's people are commanded to destroy the, the nations, other nations, their enemies. In fact, Israel is about to invade the promised land and destroy entire cities as they establish themselves in their new home. But here, here is something quite different, quite unique. God commands Moses to execute judgment on his own people. The seriousness of the sin is made known through the swiftness and extremity of God's judgment. Make no mistake, this cancer is a sin, or this sin is a cancer that will surely spread throughout the nation of Israel unless drastic measures are taken to stop it. This story ought to make us consider the seriousness of our own sin. What are the ways that you have tried to add to your faith? What are the sins that you have become comfortable with and refused to give up? What are the ways that we whore ourselves out to the gods of our surroundings? How many of us live lives of licentiousness where we indulge our flesh in any number of ways on entertainment, food, lust, gossip? How many of us treat God's good gifts as something that we have earned, and therefore we refuse to steward what God has given us for his glory. We hoard our money because we think it's ours. We hoard our time because we think we deserve it. We hoard relationships because getting involved in other people's lives is messy and uncomfortable. These are all symptoms of our sin, and they are no less odious to our Heavenly Father. But often, instead of questioning ourselves when we read this passage or passages like this, many people read stories like this and question God's character. Well, I thought God was supposed to love people. 
well, isn't God love? Where is the love of God here in Numbers 25? Surely this story can't be true, right? I mean, the God of the New Testament would never have done such a terrible thing, commanding Israel to slaughter their own people. Doesn't that sound a little extreme? If that's your response, it's helpful to remember two things. First, it's helpful to remember that God makes no mistake about this in Scripture. He requires holiness. Holiness is what God requires. God does not require you to be better than the person sitting next to you. God requires perfection. God created us good and holy in order that we might glorify him and worship him for who he is. This is a hard thing to grasp because most of us only compare ourselves to other people. Well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. Or I could be a lot worse. Or there's the common one. I'm not Hitler, right? Somehow Hitler always gets brought into the, the holiness discussion. Or we set up our own thresholds of morality, right? Yeah, I might struggle with anger, but I mean, I've never killed anyone. Yeah, I struggle with looking at pornography, but I've never cheated on my wife. Our moral standard is not our neighbor, and it's not some arbitrary line that we draw for ourselves. It is God himself. We are commanded to be holy without sin, as he is holy. That's the first thing to remember. When you read this passage and you, you, your mind begins to go to, well, wait a minute. This isn't the God that I want to worship. Remember, the God of the Bible requires holiness. The second thing to remember is the sin of man, your sin, my sin, is exceedingly sinful. Exceedingly Sinful. The seriousness of our sin is determined by the seriousness of the one we sin against. Every moment we don't love God with all our heart, soul, and mind is a moment of rebellion. Every time we disobey a command of God is a slap in the face to Him. Thinking about it in military terms is like this if you're a sergeant in the army, and you refuse to obey an order from a staff sergeant who is just one rank above you, you might get in a little trouble. But if you're a sergeant in the army and you refuse to obey the orders of a general, your consequence will be much, much greater. Because the seriousness of the sin is magnified by the greatness of the one offended. Our sin is infinitely sinful Because we have sinned against an infinitely holy God. And we deserve an infinite punishment. God owes no one anything good. It is not unjust for God to demand anyone's life, whether it's 24,000 Israelites or those of us in this room. 
God owes no one anything good. Every breath we breathe is a breath of mercy. Every time we have food to eat, it is a gift from God. Every moment of joy and pleasure we experience is a moment that has been granted to us by our Creator. What do we have that we have not received? God owes you nothing except one thing, death. If we're going to talk about God being just, and we want a just God, then that's what we deserve, death. If God requires holiness, and we haven't met that standard, in fact, we are exceedingly sinful, then what is God just to do? Destroy us. If we want what we deserve, then we deserve death. And here, in this story, that's exactly what God delivers. He is never unjust. But thankfully, and this is a big thankfully, that's not the whole story. If God chose to do so, he could end the story right there and wipe everyone out and be done, the end. But he doesn't. He has a rescue plan. God always has a rescue plan. Look with me in verse 4 again. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. God sees the rebellion of his people, and yes, immediate, swift judgment is in order. But why? You always have to ask the why question. What is the purpose of God's judgment? Because he tells us all over the place. What is the purpose? We are told, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away. You see, in this story, God's anger is not like our anger God's anger is never simply a display of his power and might and authority over us, even though it has every right to be that. God has every right to display his power, might, and authority and end our lives instantly, but he doesn't. Many times when we get angry and lash out at someone, we are looking for that quick satisfaction of putting someone in their place, making an example out of them, showing off our own status and authority. Our anger is a means to our own self-glory, a glory that does not belong to us. But here we see that even God's judgment is a means of grace. In the midst of Israel's sin and in their own destruction, God is already giving them a way to be rescued. In fact, his judgment is all part of the plan. God always has a rescue plan. Every night before bed, I gather Nella and Silas up on the couch, and we, we pull. Ezra's t- still too young. He just rips pages out of the, the Bible. Um, but Nella and Silas, we gather them up on the couch. We pull out the Jesus Storybook Bible. I love the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you don't have it, quick plug, get the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's, it's great. Um, But what I love about the Jesus Storybook Bible is the way that the authors are careful to connect each story to the coming of Christ. 
So when you read about Adam and Eve and their sin in the garden and God sending them out because of their sin, you also read that from the beginning, God had a plan to win them back. When you read about Moses or Joseph rescuing God's people from slavery or famine, you also read about the one who would someday come to rescue God's people once and for all from the power of sin and death. You see, God always has a rescue plan. He is never caught off guard. And he even tells the Israelites how he is going to rescue them. Some of you perhaps are here today and you are wondering what plan God might have for you. How could God rescue me after what I've done? I don't see any way out of my situation or I don't see any hope. But take courage today that God has a rescue plan for your life. He wants to see it come about. But also remember that it may not be what you're expecting. Because what we see next in our story, at least for me, is not what I would expect to see. Verse 6, we are told that while the congregation of Israel was weeping at the entrance of the tabernacle, a man by the name of Zimri, we're told later uh, in, in this chapter, this man's name was Zimri. He comes walking by. And with him is a Midianite woman by the name of Cosby. Haha, ha, another funny name. Cosby, a Midianite woman. He has her with him. They're walking by. And as they walk by, we are told, they, they walk by in the sight of Moses and the whole congregation of Israel. So here, in the midst of Israel's grief and repentance, we see just how unashamed some of the men of Israel had become in their sin. Apparently, this man had no problem walking right through the, Israel, the, 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 the middle of Israel's national repentance, hand in hand with his pagan adulteress. We see here just how desensitized we can become to sin when we are surrounded by it and when we allow it to systematically become part of our lives. No doubt, this kind of open sin did not happen overnight. No one wakes up one day and out of nowhere decides to be the first one to walk an adulteress through the midst of God's people. But for this to happen means that over the course of time, little by little, it had probably become common practice. Sin does not seek to take over our lives immediately, but rather by gradual, small steps. John Owen, writing about the deceitfulness of sin, says this, Sin's expression is modest in the beginning, but once it has gained a foothold, it continues to take further ground and presses on to greater heights. This advance of sin keeps the soul from seeing that it is drifting from God. The soul becomes indifferent to the seed of sin as it continues to grow. This growth has no boundaries but utter denial of God and opposition to him. What are you doing to kill sin before it kills you? What guards have you put in place in your daily life to keep the ever-increasing power of sin from hardening your heart and eventually drawing you away from God? Church, what sin are we willing to flaunt and openly indulge in because we as a church 
have grown accustomed to it. How many of us complain or gossip or waste time on things that have no eternal significance? How many of us try to love God and the world at the same time? Is there any hope? When we think about our sin and the exceeding sinfulness of it and our daily lives, the daily battles of fighting uh, against it, is there really any hope of victory? Well, if there's one thing I want to say to you today, it is yes, there is hope Yes, we are great sinners, and yes, we deserve God's judgment, and yes, God would be just to destroy us, and yes, there is great hope for sinners like us today. Because when we read on in verse 7, we read that there was a man named Phineas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, and when he saw this man take this woman into his tent, he rose, left the congregation, took a spear in his hand, and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly, probably in the middle of their sexual activity. Thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped And we are told in verse 11 that Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. So what does it take to be rescued? What did it take for Israel to be rescued? Make no mistake, it took the shedding of blood. 24,000 people died in the slaughter. But not only did it take the shedding of blood, it took the willingness of one man to be jealous for God's name and zealous for his glory, so much so that he was willing to enter into another man's chamber and pierce him through in order to avert God's wrath. You see, it has always been the case That for sin to be forgiven, atonement must be made. From the beginning, God has always required a sacrifice for sin. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God killed an animal in order to clothe them with the fur. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God giving the Israelites a sacrificial system of slaughtering animals in order to atone for the sins of the people. And here, Phinehas, a priest, son of Aaron, and Eliezer, both priests of Israel, takes on the role of his fathers and stands in the gap for his people by making atonement and satisfying the wrath of God. What was God's response to Phineas? Look at verse 12. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. God rewards Phineas by promising to establish his priesthood forever. That doesn't mean that Phineas would live forever. 
But it does mean that a descendant of Phineas would always be able to intercede for God's people. And since we live on this side of the cross, we know that the priesthood of Aaron, of Eliezer, of Phineas, found its ultimate fulfillment in the coming of Christ, our great high priest. See, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, we are told that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? So you see, just as Phineas wept over the sin of God's people, so Christ was grieved over the sin of Israel. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not come, Christ says. Just as Phineas was jealous for the glory of God's name, so Christ came with the jealousy of his father to execute justice and righteousness on his behalf. Just as Phineas, the priest, followed Zimri into the chamber, so Christ has entered into the most holy place where only the high priest can go to make atonement for the people. And just as Phineas speared Zimri and Cosby through the belly, so Christ was speared through the side as he hung on the cross. And just as Phineas satisfied God's wrath against Israel and averted his anger, so Christ has made eternal satisfaction for sin, having risen from the dead, now sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you, for me. And the covenant that God has made with his people thousands of years ago is still in Tact. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. Despite our unfaithfulness, God has remained faithful, always. So this story of sin, rebellion, horrific death, brutality is not ultimately about those things, is it? It's about God's love. It's about God's mercy, his faithfulness to uphold the covenant he made with his people through the atonement that he plans, provides, and accepts. So what does this mean for us today? Is this just some ancient, obscure, Old Testament story that we should try to avoid because it makes us feel uncomfortable? What should be our response? Well, my prayer, my hope this morning is that you would recognize first that you are a great sinner. That's often not hard for people to accept as long as that's as far as it goes. Well, sure, I'm a sinner. Yeah, yeah, I'm a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. You 
are a great sinner. But along with that, recognize that because of your sin, you deserve eternal separation from God. There's a place called hell. It's a real place. That's where you deserve to go. Because of our sin, we deserve eternal punishment, eternal torment. Third, recognize that God himself came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ in order to live the perfect life that you did not live and to offer his own body as a final sacrifice for sins. And then three days later, he rose from the grave in order to prove that he was the son of God and that God's wrath has been satisfied. And fourth, know today that those who turn from their sins and place their trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life can be made right with God. Our response today is simply repentance, faith, and worship. And now, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper as a church, I don't know what better way to introduce this practice, this practice that the church has been uh, practicing for hundreds of years. I don't know any better way to introduce it than what we have already seen. We drink the cup because it symbolizes the blood that Christ shed for us. We break the bread because it symbolizes the body of Christ that was broken for us on the cross. And we do this together because we have been rescued When we read this story of Phineas, we see that that we are those unrighteous Israelites running after the gods of the nations. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And I remember who I was before Christ. That was me. That was me. That would still be me had I not been washed. I opened the sermon by talking about Bob Cousy, famous Boston Celtics basketball player and his wife with dementia. It's one thing to remain faithful to someone who has been faithful to you, someone who's loved you, cared for you for many years. It's another thing to remain faithful to someone who hates you, who curses your name, who openly 
and repeatedly sins against you in word and deed. Church, let's stand in awe today at the love of our Heavenly Father. He has shown His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray and prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, the gospel is a glorious thing. I pray, Lord, that as, as we observe the Lord's Supper now, um, uh, as, as Chet introduces it, and as we partake of the, the cup and the bread, that our minds and our hearts would be centered on you, and that this would be a, a celebration, God, as we remember the blood that was shed on our behalf, the gift that we have of grace in Christ, the fact that we are not getting what we deserve, but what we deserve has been punished in Christ. Thank you, God, for that love. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.